Okay, talking about Moses. Although we're going to get to Moses in just a minute. How many of you are, know the name LeBron James? Okay, LeBron James is an NBA basketball player. He just signed, recently signed, a $154 million deal with the LA Lakers. Four-year deal. There are 82 games in a regular NBA season, so in four years, he's going to play 328 games maximum. If you divide 154 million by 328, you get $469.5 thousand dollars per game. All right. So roughly, you know, pushing half a million dollars a game. Uh, every, you know, whether he's on court or whether he isn't. The, the games in the NBA are 48 minutes. If you divide $469,512 by 48, you get $9,781 a minute on court or off court. If you divide that by 60, we discover LeBron James, regardless of what he's doing, is going to, you know, he earns another 60 million endorsements through the course of a year, but he's going to earn $163 every second during an NBA game for the next four years. So just to put that in perspective, if I only spoke for 20 minutes, and apparently I went long last service, sorry about that, uh, for those who were waiting in the hallway, but if I only spoke for 20 minutes, uh, and I was getting paid at his rate, I'd walk away this morning with $3,260. Thank you very much, that would be great. <laughs> Think how much I could give to the building fund if I was going to 154 million dollars. It's mind-boggling amounts of money. Now, with that kind of money, what kind of house do you think LeBron James lives in? Too big. A giant house somewhere special, California coast or something. Yeah, of course he does. Do you think he cuts his own grass? No, no. Does he do his own laundry? No, no. All right. Do you think he, uh, he fixes things? Oh, look, there's a light bulb out. I'll just go and get a new light bulb. Do you think he does handy things around the house? I highly doubt it. Why? Because he's earning $154 million in the next four years. He would pay people to do those kinds of things. That's what he would do. He probably doesn't make his own bed. He doesn't clean his own toilets. He doesn't do any of that stuff. What do you think? How is he treated as he walks down the street? Let's say he walked down Main Street in a corner walk. What, what are people going to do? They're going to stop him and they're going to ask for his autograph. All right, because he's famous. He couldn't go in any store without people saying, oh, LeBron, I, I served a coffee to LeBron James today. That's what we do, isn't it? We get all, you know, you know they're famous for being famous. It's really weird when you get, to, you know, get down to the, the brass tacks of what fame is. He is treated differently because he is rich and he is famous. You can't live with extreme wealth and privilege and not be affected, not be impacted by those things. His life is altered because of the wealth and the privilege. But if you're, a, uh, if you're a nobody like you and me, what the Victorian, some Victorian writer said, the great unwashed is how they described, you know, the regular, regular Joes because there was the, the upper echelon of the elite, the super rich, and then everybody else was just the great unwashed, which back in Victorian days may have been true, but of course I'm sure you all showered this morning uh, without any trouble. But let's go to the other end, among the great unwashed. The Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the poorest countries in the world. In 2013, the average wage was $394, 394 
per year. $394 a year. LeBron James earns more than that in three seconds on court. So you go from super rich to extreme poverty. A street vendor in India, someone who sells vegetables, homemade little trinkets like wristbands or something, on the side of the road. They earn about 60 rupees a day, which is just less than a dollar. What kind of house do you think the street vendors in India live in? If they have a house, all right? Who does their laundry? Who does their chores? Who cleans their toilets if they have one? They do. They have to do all that themselves. Of course they do. How are they treated as they walk down the street? They're treated like, no, no, no. They're not treated in any way because they're ignored or they are despised or they are just, you know, depends on how, you know, who's passing by them, I guess. You see, you can't live with extreme poverty and not be affected, not be impacted by that. Your life is going to be impacted, um, which is something, you know, you're in survival mode, something the rich never even have to think about, the super rich. I don't have to think about survival. I've got uh, all the money in the world. I'm making money right now, $163 a second while I'm playing this game. So you don't think, you know, how am I going to feed my family tonight? It doesn't cross their mind. Compared to most of the world, you know, there's the super rich and there's the super poor. You know, where would we think, well, maybe we're in the middle? No, 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 we're, we're actually up here. You know, living in the US, most of us are up here. Over half the world, 50%, so let's just split this in half. If, uh, if, if this is the world, half of the world lives on $2.50 a day, 250. 80% of the world, so let's just ignore this section over here. This is 80% live on $10 or less a day. What we would spend on a, a fancy coffee from somewhere, that's what they live on in a day. So even though we don't, may not think of ourselves as rich, we are really, we're not the super rich, but we're up there on the global scale because we live in America. It's an affluent society. Eight out of 10 people, $10 a day. What's this got to do with our series on Moses? Well, as Pastor Luke pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the first 40 years of Moses' life was lived like LeBron James. He's living in a palace. He's living in the palace of one of the greatest well, the greatest empire on earth at the time. He was living in the lap of luxury, enjoying all the extravagances and excesses that come with, the, with that lifestyle. He snaps his fingers, and there's people there instantly saying, you know, get me a drink, you know, bring me, bring me a goblet of something cool and refreshing. You know, and they do it, because that's the privileged life that he was living. 40 years, 40 years is a long time, all right? And you could get really used to having somebody do everything for you. So you just get to play. You get to goof around. Okay, he had an education. He had to learn the art of warfare and so forth. But, you know, responsibility free. You know, I never have to think about where the next meal's coming from or uh, what, you know, who's going to do these, these jobs, who's going to fix this thing. Lap of luxury. 40 years. But then, Kind of like somebody who wins the lottery and then loses it all. He lost everything. He lost everything. He goes from the super elite rich to nothing. Overnight, runs away. And for the next 40 years, he lives among the poor in obscurity. as a nobody, as a member of the great unwashed. 
an unknown prince, a stranger in a strange land. He experienced life on the other side of the tracks, as the expression goes, where there were no servants, where he had to do all of his own work and live by the sweat of his brow, which meant for him tending sheep in the desert, in the dust, and in the heat. And they weren't even his sheep. They were somebody else's sheep that he's tending. He's poor enough that he can't afford sheep. So he really has gone from riches to rags. And uh, that's how far he's fallen. Now, it's a very rare thing for someone who is born to wealth and privilege to experience both sides of the tracks. It's a very rare thing. In fact, I don't know if I've met anybody who's ever done it, but they're out there. You know, the, the, the multi-million dollar um, lottery winners and so on sometimes do that. But uh, it has happened. Uh, the, the movie, if you've seen the, the old movie Overboard with Goldie Horn and Kurt Russell, you get a glimpse of what it might be like. Somebody, you know, there's this rich woman who's living on a yacht and, you know, she's having somebody just paint her fingernails and she's acting like this. And, and then there's Kurt Russell, this, this carpenter who's scraping a living by and, and the, the world's, if you, I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, but anyway, she gets to experience both sides of the tracks. And... Uh, most of us are born with blinkers, and we move around in our own little kind of uh, strata of society. That's, that's what we're locked into. But Moses went through life, um, and the blinders got taken off. And he got to see the world in two different extremes. He got a, a graduate education uh, in both. <clears throat> For what's ahead, Moses is going to need all the skills and all the education that he had here in Egypt. He's going to need those things. But equally, he's going to need all the skills that poverty and hard work and family and community instilled in him while he was tending sheep in the wilderness. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's more on that for next week. So we're just going to pick up the story where we are. Moses is now 80, right? When most of us are thinking about well, some people were thinking about retiring to Florida, you know, buying a little condo, buy a golf course. And, of course, he can't do that because he's poor, and you can't just up and, you because know, you can't retire. You've got nothing to retire on if you're living in poverty. And so that's not going to happen. But he's 80, and uh, he's tending sheep that aren't his for his father-in-law in Midian. And if you're tending sheep, I've never done it, just so as you know, but I can imagine all you, you know, you're just wandering around all day trying to find food for these, uh, these, these sheep. And you have all the time in the world to do nothing but think. You're in your head. There's nobody to talk to. Uh, you know, maybe like Tom Hanks in Castaway, he could start talking to a, you know, a volleyball. Maybe he's talking to a sheep, but he's got nobody to talk. He's on his own. So he's living in his head. And, and guess what I'm going to be going through his head? For years, he's going to be replaying the tapes if only I could go back and undo that one act, that one thing, if I hadn't killed that Egyptian, that, you know, if I could have just restrained myself, if I could have just punched his lights out, knocked him out or something, and not killed him, my life would be so different. Maybe he just has, maybe that's just on loop in his head. And uh, he has time to sit and wonder, Am I ever going to see my family again? Is that ever going to happen? Both families, the royal family as well as his own uh, personal family. He's got time to sit and wonder if God has abandoned him. God has just cast him off. He, God put me somewhere and I blew it. 
I mean, I just, I seriously blew it. You can't blow it any bigger than Moses blew it. Perhaps he's wondering if God is punishing him. Perhaps he's wondering if this is what, this is my lot. I'm going to live out the rest of my, rest of my days in obscurity here. Those must have run through his head a million times. So, what about us? Let's just pause before we even begin this piece of the story. Where are we today? Have we ever felt that we've been put on the shelf by God? Did you think your life was going to go one way and, you, and it went a completely different direction? And you feel like you're spinning your wheels, you're killing time because, well, God must have moved on to more important things. Maybe He's fixing things in the Middle East or something because He's sure not doing anything in my life. Here I am just in this, stuck in these boring, dull routines of life that seem to make up my existence. And, uh, and we feel like we've just lost our way. Maybe, maybe I did something. Maybe I'm being punished. Those same kind of thoughts, very easy to run through our heads. It's thinking we're not really on God's radar. But then we come back to, remember a month ago when we launched this series, I spoke about a lower story and an upper story, and how just because we don't think anything's going on in the lower story doesn't mean that God isn't doing something, because He is always at work. And He is in our lives, even as He is in Moses' life. This is, um, just because we don't see God doing something for us doesn't mean he, he doesn't have a task that he wants us to accomplish. The older I get and the more convinced I become that the greatest task God ever gives the vast majority of us is not to preach or serve in the church or become a missionary or, or work in the community. I think the greatest task God gives most of us is for us to simply learn how to live out our faith at home. Live out our faith at home. That's what Moses is learning to do. Well, he's in Midian. Think about it. Where do we learn to love one another? You know, if I'm a, I'm a pop star and I'm on stage and there's a sea of people before me and I say, I love you all. Well, no, I can love everybody from a distance. Loving people from a distance, piece of cake. Put me in the same room with them and say, you have to live with this person for the next 45 years, you know. Well, now you have to figure out what does loving this person look like. There's the challenge. It's in the home. That's where we have to, that's where the fruit of the Spirit gets to be molded and shaped. We need to learn about joy and peace and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness. It's in the home we have to learn those things. The home, I believe, with all my heart is the greatest proving ground of our faith. That's where the greatest spiritual battles are fought. That's where the greatest temptations we're faced with uh, come up. It's in the home. That's, I think, one of the greatest places that God has for us. Moses wasn't learning uh, those kinds of lessons in the palace. He wasn't learning any of those things. He was learning how to be served. But when he was on the other end, he learned all about service and care and community and family. Being a husband and a father. I'd even go so far as to say that if my faith is not real in my home, it's a sham, all right? That's, I, I would put it that way. Other people may think I'm wonderful. They may think, oh, isn't he so caring? He's, fa he's thoughtful, he's kind, he's generous, he's considerate. But if my family don't think I'm that way, it's, I'm a fraud. It's all a pretense. I'm putting on a wonderful show because it's in the home where who you really are 
gets to be exhibited. And that's why God wants faith to be manifest first, I believe, in our homes with our, with our spouses and with our children. What I believe Moses learned in the second 40 years of his life far outshined what he learned in the first 40 years. He may have gotten, you know, an education and some, you know, tactical training and so forth, but you can't, you can't learn that here. You learn about community and life and love in the home. Okay, that's all kind of preamble. Let's get back to the story and pick it up. So he was rescued, or not rescued, invited to dinner by these uh, seven, uh, seven girls that he rescued from the, the, the Mead shepherds. And he marries one of them and has two children, and that's where he is in Midian, living with his father-in-law. So in your imagination, which is just a movie that isn't on the screen, in your imagination, I want you to picture and see uh, the ragamuffin sheep that are following behind, because that's what they do in Israel. They don't, you, know, you don't herd the sheep forward. They follow the shepherd. And so he's got this little herd of sheep that he's, uh, he's walking around in the wilderness. It's, it's hot. We're past noon. The sun is high. It's pounding down. The sky is cloudless, and uh, the ground is dusty. It's dirty. It's littered with rocks and sparse vegetation, and there is no shade. So he's just burning up. And this is just every day, another day in the wilderness with sheep. But then I want you to kind of mentally zoom in and take a closer look at Moses. You see his clothes. They're dirty. They're kind of dusty. They've seen better days. He's lean. His face is bearded. And it's leathery. You know, I've seen somebody who, you know, farmers often get this. If the people who live outdoors, their faces become really deeply wrinkled and lined. And they're tanned all year round. And it's just, they become, they, and you can tell. There's, now there's a person who lives out in the weather. And that's what he has become. You move with him as he picks his way over the uneven ground using his shepherd's staff for support because he doesn't want to twist an ankle and then limp back home for the rest of the day. And as he's looking at the ground in front of him as he walks along, suddenly something flickers off on the side in his peripheral vision. And, and he pauses and he, and he kind of shades his eyes and he squints to see what's off. But there's a heat haze. If you're anywhere hot, there's this just giant heat haze and everything's kind of shimmering and he can't really see what's going on over there, but something's glittering, something's flickering. You sense his hesitation. Does he ignore it? Does he just plod on, or, or does he turn aside and investigate? You know, weariness pulls at him, tells him it's nothing. How could it be? This is the wilderness. Nothing ever happens in the wilderness. But some unseen force tugs at him, so he decides to wander over and check it out. And as he moves a little bit closer, the heat haze begins to clear. And uh, what he sees stops him in his tracks. It's a bush. And it's, uh, it's alive with fire. But there's no smoke. And it makes no sound. And there's no popping. There's no crackling of branches, which is what you get with fire. And the bush, and the, the bush isn't being consumed. So he kind of rubs his eyes and he thinks, oh, I should go check this out because what is going on? I've never seen anything like this. He wonders if the, the sun has fried his brain at last. So he picks his way closer over the uneven ground, and it, it looked kind of small from a distance, but he gets closer, he realizes this is thing is bigger than he is. And there's this just huge flame, and it's silent. No crackling, no smoke, just a bush and a flame. And it isn't making any sense. It's not computing with him. A shiver, even though it's hot, a 
shiver runs down his spine. The silence is unnerving. It's unearthly. And then there is a voice, an impossibly powerful, rich, intimate voice that says his name twice. Moses! Moses! And Moses glances around, and he's like, he doesn't see anybody. And he says, uh, I, I'm here. And he's not really, because he doesn't know where it's coming from at this point. Do not come any closer, the voice says. At which point Moses realized it's coming from the bush. The bush is talking to him. And, and now he's focused. Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And as soon as Moses hears this, he buries his face in his hands, terrified, terrified to, to even think to look any longer at what he now knows is God. This before him, the God of his fathers. And he knows all about God. This is, this is nothing to be trifled with. And so he, he thinks, if I, if I keep looking, I'm going to die. Because if you, if you see God, that's it. Your, your, your chips are up. And so he hides his face, and he talks for the most part of this rest of the conversation. He's talking through his fingers, and he's not looking at this God with whom he is having a conversation. Take off your shoes, Moses, the voice says. The place where you're standing is holy. So Moses, eyes tight shut, kind of fumbles with the, the, the thongs on his, on his sand, and he kicks off his shoes. And uh, if the ground didn't feel holy before as he puts his bare feet on the hot, rough ground, it feels holy now. And what follows is one of the longest and most fascinating discussions in all of Scripture between God, who reveals himself in a bush that isn't burning, and a human being. We call it a burning bush, but of course actually it was just flaming. It didn't burn. And God informs Moses that he has seen the misery of his people in Egypt. He has seen their suffering. He has heard their cry for help. And he has come down to rescue them and lead them into the promised land that he promised to Abraham a way back when. Now take note that God says he has come down to rescue them. Now I have no idea what's going through Moses' head, but it must have come as a bit of a shock when a little later on he hears God say, so now go, I'm sending you. To bring to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. And you can imagine Moses thinking, wait, he said he was going to do that. Uh, why is he asking me to go to see Pharaoh? He just told me he was going to be the one to do this. But of course, when God wants to accomplish something on this earth, he does it through people normally. And so when God says he's going to do it, yes, he is, but he's going to do it through Moses. Moses is going to be the vessel that God is choosing to use. Now, Moses takes a pretty dim view of the fact that God wants to send him back to Egypt. He's wanted on a murder rap back there, so that's not really top of his agenda, go back to Egypt. Uh, so he says, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Uh, well, why are you asking me to do that? So the excuses begin, because if when God asks us to do something and we really don't want to do it, you know, most of us put up a fight. But you, you really don't win many arguments with God. Who am I? But God isn't taking questions yet. He just continues, I will be with you, he says. All those who wanted to kill you are dead. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this very mountain. 
Moses is acutely uncomfortable about all of this because he's on the outskirts, he's on the, the, the lower levels of a mountain. And he says, suppose I go, suppose I go, he's talking through his hands, and, and, and I say, the God of your fathers has sent me to, and they say, uh, what's his name? Okay, God sent you, huh? What's his name? Which is the most ridiculous question or the, you know, excuse to use for God. Because at this point, God doesn't have a name. All right? He could have said any name, and the people who said, what's his, you know, if they were going to say, what's his name, he could have said, Howard, because Howard be thy name. That's, that's what his name is. And, uh, and what are they going to say? Eh, wrong answer. Give us another one. No, no, God doesn't have a name. So I don't even know why Moses would bring this up, because it's a ridiculous question. But amazingly, God decides to answer him, and he says, I am that I am, the Yahweh that we have in Scripture. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Call the elders together. Tell them I've, I've seen what's been done to them in Egypt and that I'm about to take them to the promised land. And then go see the king of Egypt and tell him you want to take all the people on a three-day retreat into the wilderness. However, I already know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. There's a pause, and then Moses, as he takes all this in, and he says, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? And they say, ah, no, the Lord never appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? And he said, oh, maybe he was covering his face with one hand if he's still holding his staff. He says, it's a staff. And the Lord says, throw it to the ground. So Moses threw it to the ground, and it turns into a snake which terrifies Moses, and hot foot, barefoot, he's hopping away on the hot, and trying to get away from this snake. And God's like, Moses, get back here. Reach out and take the snake by the tail. So he takes it by the tail, turns back into his staff. And then God says, put your hand in your cloak. So he puts his hand in his tunic. So I pull it out, and it was snow white, leprosy. And you know, I can just imagine. So got, Moses has got his eyes open a little bit here. Now put it back in. So he puts it back in, pulls it out, and it's back to normal. You know, it's like, you know. Wow, kind of like Bruce Almighty when he's got seven fingers and you're like, Whoa. and he's back, he's back to normal. This, said the Lord, is so that you may believe that the Lord, the God of the, uh, your fathers, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob has appeared to you. So these are the signs. Throw your staff down and the, the leprosy sign. Then there's another pause, longer than the last one. And Moses blurts out, forgive me, Lord. Uh, but I, I'm no good with words. I, I never have been. I'm not now. I'm not, even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied. I, I, I stutter. You know, just making stuff up at this point. Because we know from Acts, where that Luke told us uh, last week or the week before, that he was mighty in word and deed. He, wasn't, he was capable of speaking. So he's just he's making things up now. God says to him, who made your mouth, Moses? Your ears, your eyes. I did. Enough with the excuses. Now Go. I'll help you speak, and I'll teach you what to say. Unbelievably, Moses just gets right down to the bar, and he's like, send somebody else. God, I don't want to do it. Send somebody else. At which point, the great I am kind of gets ticked off with Moses. And he's like, fine. What about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. I'll send him to meet you while you're going, and I will tell you what to say, and you can pass on the words to him, and he will be your mouth. Now take your staff in your hand and use it to perform the miraculous signs I've shown you. And then there's silence. And who knows how long he waited until he started to peek through his fingers and 
and it's just the bush and the presence and the fire have gone, and he's on his own. And so he sits on a rock, and he puts his sandals back on, and he's thinking, they are never going to believe this when I get home. This is, well, they do believe him. Jethro, his father-in-law, believes him, and he gets back, tells him the whole story, and Jethro says, go. If God's told you to go, go, and I wish you well. So Moses packs his things. He saddles up the donkeys with his wife and sons, and with the staff of God in his hand, he starts back to Egypt. And back at that same place, on the base of that same mountain, he meets up with Aaron, whom God has spoken to and has led out to meet up with him. And he tells everything to Aaron that God has done. And then they go back and they call the elders of Israel together. And he performs those two signs. He throws the staff, shows them the hand. And, uh, and they believe him as well. Everybody apparently is just believing him. He had a really hard time accepting anything, but everybody's believing what he's saying. And when the elders learn that God has heard their prayers and has seen their misery, you know, if, if, we, if we'd heard that, we'd think, we'd be dancing around, wouldn't we? We'd say, yes, God's heard us. I love that they didn't do that. When they heard, because now Moses is there, it says they bowed down and they worshiped. They worshiped God. God has heard us. He has seen us. That's their response. Now, that's as far as we're going in the story of Moses this week, but what an extraordinary couple of chapters this is. Moses and the flaming bush, a unique event in the history of God's dealings with his people. It really is unique. I love that about God. He doesn't, he doesn't give everybody a burning bush experience. You know, we don't say, yeah, I had my, uh, had my burning bush experience. Have you had yours yet? Yeah, I had mine last week. It was pretty cool. Appeared to me in a bush. And... God doesn't do that. He deals with us individually. Never again in the history of the world do we read of anybody encountering God through a burning bush. And he calls, as Jesus said, you know, the sheep know the shepherd, and the, the shepherd calls them by name. He calls us by our names in unique ways. I met somebody once who came to faith in Christ as he fell backwards off a chair. Now, if he'd gone around preaching, all you have to do to come to Christ is just lean back a bit too far, boom, you'll feel it. You know, the Holy Spirit will come. But no, you can't do that. God deals with this uniquely. And he does that with, with Moses here. And that's what, that's what he does with all of his children. So Moses has to take off his shoes. God tells him, take off your shoes. What an interesting thing to make him do. Why does he have to take off his shoes? Well, there's a lot of speculation about why God has him do this. Some say it was a sign of respect, like, you know, you go into somebody's house, you kick your shoes off because you just want to respect their home. Okay, others say it was there so that uh, there would be no barrier between him and God. He's just on the ground, holy ground before God. Well, okay, but if it was you know, no barriers, he'd have to take everything off because there's still, there's still barriers between him and a holy God. And others insist that it was a custom from the Egyptian temples where priests removed their shoes before going in so they would avoid defiling a holy place. Well, they could all or none of them be true. But if it was important, I think we'd find God telling other people to remove their shoes when they have encounters with him through the rest of Scripture. And we don't find him doing that. So I don't think, if we're thinking, and you know, why did he take his shoes off? I think we're focusing on the wrong thing at that point. It was the presence of God that made this whole event special. It wasn't the ground. It wasn't that he had shoes on. It was God's presence that made it a holy moment. And that, I think, is what we should be giving our attention to. 
Taking his shoes off may have been nothing more than providing Moses with an opportunity to respond in some way, which we like to do when we encounter something phenomenal. We, you know, of course, today we just take our phones out and we would be clicking away on our phones. But uh, he ought to do something tangible to help seal this. This is, this is a holy moment, Moses. And Moses understood that because he is standing toe-to-toe with the creator of the universe, toe-to-toe with the one who spoke and worlds came into being, the one who revealed himself to his forefathers that he's heard about through his life, that he received his education, not just in the palace, but he was a Hebrew. He knew the stories. He knew what God had done. And it was because he knew he was standing toe-to-toe with God that he covered his face, terrified. Remember what Pastor Luke said in his Churchy Word series a little while ago about the fear of the Lord, about how God is good. He's not mean. He's good, but he's dangerous. God is not to be trifled with. He is a consuming fire, even though he didn't consume the bush in that instance. He's an earthquake. God is a tempest. Author Annie Dillard puts it this way. She says, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? when we pray to God Almighty. Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out where we can never return. Well, the sleeping God awoke that day in the desert and gave Moses an encounter that he and the world has never forgotten. And the GPS of Moses' whole existence got recalculated at that point. And and he got sent off in a direction that he didn't even think that, that path existed. But God did the recalculating, and off he went. I'm going to do this. I'm sending you. There it is. Go. Just so you know... That same holy God, that same tempest, that earthquake, He is here with us this morning. He's the one we have come before to worship and to adore. His presence makes this holy ground. So the question then becomes, is He saying anything to us? Have we seen anything flickering off Maybe in the peripheral vision of our faith, has there been anything that God has been trying to get our attention with, but we've been too bone-weary to go and explore? Have we been so locked into the routine of our mundane existence, thinking, well, this is it. I had hopes, I had dreams. Well, and this is where I am, and so I've given up. It's just, you know, I'm, I'm just, I've been, I've been shelved. So we've missed what was over here because we never went and looked But I got to tell you, it's never too late. It is never too late to wander over, to see this thing, to say, okay, I'm going to go and see. And if we hear the voice of God calling us by name, we need to be ready to bury our face in the wonder of his love and accept the calling that he gives us and allow him to do the recalculating on our personal GPS. And then it says, I want you to get involved in that ministry. I want you to go and do this. I want you, fill in the blank, because he speaks to us by name. 
Perhaps that doesn't describe you. Maybe you're not waiting for your, that big experience to lead you off. Maybe you already have one. Maybe that's, you're on the other side. Perhaps uh, God has met you in some amazing way, and you had an encounter that left you breathless and shaken. But somewhere along the line, our focus shifted from the one that we met to the experience that we had. Moses doesn't spend the rest of his life checking out every bush that he comes across. Oh, if I could just have that burning bush experience again. But that's what we do sometimes. We start seeking the experience instead of the God who gave it to us. Because it's not the experience that's important. It's the God that gave it to us that's important. And we pour energy into trying to duplicate something. And it doesn't work. We have to seek the giver, not the gift. It's never too late to peek through our fingers. We had this experience and realize, okay, the experience is over. The presence is gone. Now I have to respond to the commission that I received. Now I have to decide, am I going to do what he said? Never too late. We may convince ourselves that what God has said to us, nobody's going to believe it. But maybe they will, like they did with Moses. Go and I wish you well. Maybe the maybe the people's benediction. Go and wish you well. You know, God hasn't called me to do that, but if He's calling you, I wish you well, with God's blessing. In the end, that's the task that is entrusted to every one of us. We are to be like Moses. We are commanded to go and tell others what we have seen and heard. That's that's all the disciples did. They went and told all that they had seen and heard. Read the, the letters of John because those are the very words that he uses. Remember the woman at the well in John 4 who met Jesus and then went back and told everyone in town, he told me everything I've ever done. And against all odds, they believed her and they came out and listened to him to meet Jesus for themselves. And the same thing that happened to the elders of Israel when Moses went to see them happens to them and they bow down and they worship. And they say to the woman, we don't believe anymore just because of what you said. We have heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the savior of the world. That's our commission. In whatever shape or form it, it works, that's our commission. Go and tell what God, all that you have seen and heard of the Lord. I'm going to ask you to do something if you have, you're welcome not to, but I just want you to bow. We're going to bow and worship ourselves uh, on our own holy ground. And this is going to sound strange, but if you want to, slip off your shoes. Slip off your shoes. I went to a a men's conference one time, and they paired us up randomly, and I was with some guy, and again, we were given the offer, if you want to, take off a shoe, put one another's shoes on, don't talk, just pray, and it was amazing what God did, just because I was wearing somebody else's shoes that didn't fit, but I got, again, and I prayed, and then we shared afterwards how both we felt that God had spoken through the other person into our life. So, if you'd like to, slip your shoes off, and let's pray. Holy God, I am so glad that you don't deal with us en masse, that you deal with us individually. You call us by name, and your sheep hear your voice, and you invite us to follow. And sometimes what you ask us to follow is not where we want to go, but you promise that you go with us. That's the gift. We don't leave the presence behind. The presence remains.
And I pray that any of us here this morning who have seen a flickering and not responded, I pray we would respond and we'd go and find out what is it that you have to say to us. And if we did go and we've had an experience that has blown us away, I pray we would be focusing on the one who gave it to us and being obedient to the things that have been revealed so that we can go and tell all that we have seen and heard, which is your commission to us. Father, thank you that being a consuming earthquake tempest, that we can stand toe-to-toe with you this morning and speak with you and be safe because we're in your Son. May we go out in that confidence because we ask it for his sake and for your kingdom. Amen. God bless you, third service. Have a wonderful week.